This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 15, verses 8 to 11. It can be found on page 901 and 902 in your black-covered Bibles. John 15, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Good morning, everyone. Hey. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to pray for us, and we'll just get rolling. So, Father, um, man, we love to declare that we need you. We need you, we need you, we need you. Um, That's not a bug in the system. It's a feature. That's how you made us. There won't ever be a day for all eternity where we don't need the living God. I love to declare that. I love to sing with your people and announce that to the world. We love to humbly submit under your word. Spirit of God, would you take um, the scripture today? Would you plant it in our hearts deeply? Would you give us good soil? Would you warm up cold hearts today, I ask? And Spirit of God, would you make alive dead hearts that are in this room this morning? Your word never comes back to you void. It always accomplishes its purpose. We believe that. We trust that. We, uh, we bank our hopes on that. We lean on that. We stand on that as we sit under your word this morning. Fill us with faith in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. And we've been preaching the Upper Room Discourse, also called the Farewell Discourse, for about nine weeks. And this morning, I'm going to put a period at the end of that series before we kind of jump into the next series that we're going to be in for the remainder of the summer or the remainder of July. Next week, Andrew will get up and he'll preach from the book of Psalms and we'll be in the Psalms for, the, for all of July. And that reminds me, which is fun that this reminds me of this, but that reminds me that uh, my first Sunday at Redeemer Fellowship was July 3rd of 2011. It, was, it wasn't my first Sunday because I had moved and was looking for a new church community. And it wasn't my first Sunday because I was leaving a church that I had differences of like values or doctrine with. The fact is, is that I wasn't leaving a church at all. I didn't have a church at that time. I hadn't been inside a church in a consistent way for at least seven years. But in July of 2011, I'd promised myself that I was going to try some new church plant in the city that I knew almost nothing about. And I decided I was going to go back to the house of God because the slop that I had been eating in my house was leaving me spiritually sick 
and anemic and atrophied. My life at that time was very much so in shambles. My soul was in shambles and I was broken and wrecked and alone. So I decided to roll the dice and see what happens. I had no plans of coming back. I had no plans to turn from the life that I was living. I was only going to go once and see what happened. I really didn't want to be known. I really didn't want to be noticed. I really didn't want to be bothered. I was destroyed. My life was destroyed and I didn't know what else to do. And if you knowingly run away from the God of the universe, you start trusting and trying to love the world instead, you begin to build this kind of muddy, trashy, heaping wall of shame between you and God. But later, when things get bad enough, sometimes God in his mercy gives you the desperation to try anything. You might even get desperate enough to try going to church. And that's what happened to me 11 years ago next Sunday. Praise God. I was living an an immoral and decadent life at the time, and that had me rotting. And I'd scouted out Redeemer out of desperation. And at this point, I had kind of psyched myself up to, to get the courage to go. And I remember on this morning, it was raining, but I'd made a commitment to myself that I was going to do this on this Sunday. I wasn't going to chicken out. So I rode my bike in the rain to my first church service in over seven years. And, and God showed up. The Spirit of God grabbed a hold of me. The worship of God moved me deeply. The people of God welcomed me, even though I was pretty resistant to it. That wasn't their fault. That was my fault. I was the one that was cold at that time in my life. And the word of God pierced me to my core. I was cut to the quick and my life was changed forever. Forever. I left that day and quit my job and I never looked back. And maybe that's too strong. I did look over my shoulders a few times, but by God's grace, I never, ever, ever went back. I left the life that I was living behind and I've been here ever since. July is a month that I get to meditate on that story because I know what the prophet Amos means when he describes God's mercy being distributed to God's people through the consequences of their actions. My pain and misery and atrophy at that time was God's mercy to me. So I would get desperate enough to come back. Sometimes God lets us feel the sting of our sin and idolatry. And I'm beginning my sermon this way today, talking about my story, because I want every single person in this room and every single person in our church to know and understand the kind of Christ, the kind of Jesus that we're focusing on, that we're trying our hardest to listen to as we read through the farewell discourse. He never left me. Even though I had left him, he never left me behind. Even though I had trampled his name in the mud with how I was living my life, his arms were never shut against me. He never cut me off. He always loved me. And I want you to know right now that it doesn't matter how far away you are or how far away you might think you are, Jesus Christ never turns his back on broken people, ever, ever. 
These three chapters in John demonstrate clearly the character of Christ, and it shows us what Jesus is up to. Jesus labors to help us understand the reality of the universe. Jesus labors to help us understand over and over again. He tries to explain to us the Father as he's explaining the Father to his disciples. He's explaining the relationship that he shares with the Father and the purpose and function of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is unveiling himself to his disciples layer after layer after layer, deeper and deeper and deeper, and he does it for really clear and really loving reasons. And by way of summary, I want to name six reasons that Jesus says what he says in this farewell discourse. The text that we had read today will kind of weave up and down throughout what I'm going to talk about today, but I'm going to be jumping all over these three chapters of John a bunch. Um, I won't make you all do that with me. But I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to focus on six reasons that Jesus is taking time to unpack the background and foundation of the statements that he makes throughout these three chapters. Everything that Jesus says has a clear purpose to it. And we're going to talk about those purposes. Jesus's information and his statements have a design to them. They're designed to accomplish something in us, and they are designed to accomplish something through us. So I'm going to talk about those six reasons today. And those six reasons, or those six focuses, the six purposes or realities I'm going to talk about today are Jesus has authority. Authority. Jesus says what he says by the authority of the Father. John 14, 10. Next thing I'm going to talk about is endurance. He said these words, quote, to keep you from falling away. John 16, 1. Next thing I'm going to talk about is love. He said these words so that you will love one another. John 15, 17. Next thing I'm going to talk about is peace. He said these words so that in him you would have peace. John 16, 33. The fifth thing I'm going to talk about is joy. He said these words so that you may have joy and your joy may be full. John 15, 11. And the last thing I want to talk about is orientation. And I'm going to talk about where Jesus says um, that he, he says what he says to us so that we will remember. And that's John 16, 4. Jesus seems to think that what he communicates to us should have an undeniable effect on the relationship that we have with our circumstances. That's huge. You, every day in your life, you encounter two worlds. There's a world inside of you, your internal world that entails your fears, your passions, your longings, your doubts, the meaning that you make, the hopes that you have, the love and understanding and beliefs and values that you hold, and there's everything else, right? There's an external world, and those two worlds exist in a dynamic relationship with each other, and Jesus has something to say about that dynamic. And he isn't much for giving advice. He isn't much for suggestions that you can take or leave depending on your mood. Jesus makes pronouncements. Jesus declares reality, and he's telling us that our relationship with him Our relationship with him will determine our relationship with everything outside of us. Everything outside of us. Our relationship with Jesus will determine how we relate to everything else in our lives, period. So why should we listen to him? Why should we listen to him? The first thing I'm going to talk about is his authority. His authority. 
Jesus doesn't say anything on a whim. He isn't delivering a monologue for a cultural war march on Washington, D.C. In John chapter 519, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Again, again in John chapter 8, verse 26 through 28, Jesus says, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. John 12, 49 and 50 say, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but by the Father who has sent me, has himself given me a commandment. I, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And finally, in John 14, 10, Jesus says, do not, be, do not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus wants us to believe that what he's, that what he's saying comes down to us from the highest authority imaginable. There's no higher authority to appeal to here. There's no higher authority, authority than God the Father. The appeal to authority in general is a logical mechanism for constructing an argument. If you're debating with someone, you might often appeal to another authority on a subject to strengthen your point. Sometimes this is to strengthen our arguments, and sometimes it's just because we're beyond the scope of our expertise, so we defer to an authority. Like if you asked me about astrophysics, I would immediately defer to other authorities, right? We often quote authorities that already share our perspective, or we quote people or opinions that are not authorities merely because they share our perspective. They may not have any legitimate expertise on a subject, but we enjoy being affirmed, we enjoy being validated, and we enjoy believing that we're right. So we quote someone who agrees with us and use that quote to make us feel better. But the concept of Jesus' authority is the most important thing to understand this morning because all of his other statements flow from the fact that he can be trusted as ultimate, ultimate authority. Why should we listen to Jesus about how to live our lives if he isn't the authority on the subject? The same way that if I ever talk to you about what it takes to launch a space shuttle into space, you should cheerfully disregard everything that I say. Well, Jesus has credentials, right? He has his own credentials. It would be invalid and unsound for you to listen to my advice about how to fly a shuttle into space. It is not invalid or unsound. In fact, it is humble and the only place to go to get the authority on how to live our lives and how to understand ourselves and how to understand each other. In John chapter one, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus holds creational authority. Jesus put all the pieces together. He, he knows where they go. 
He created and assembled the universe with God the Father. He decided how much or how human beings should function and what is good for them. There's no expert on you that holds more authority over you or the subject of human beings by how they work and what is good for them for flourishing and joy and hope in this life than the Bible. And that is to say, than Jesus' words, than what Jesus says. We should listen to him. Jesus' authority is unquestionable and unassailable. Listen to Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. So Jesus, his authority is exhaustive. He has it all. There isn't any authority in this world that isn't derived from Jesus's authority. All authority that exists is borrowed from Jesus. Jesus only says what the Father tells him to say, and together they own everything, all the authority in the universe. It is because of God that the thing we understand as authority even exists in this world. Without Jesus dispensing it, no one would have it. You can trust the source of authority. Even the authority that opposes God is borrowed from God. He is sovereign over all of it. The scripture doesn't leave the authority of Jesus up for debate. He's he's not one among many. He's the preeminent one. And he says things to us for a reason. The next thing I want to focus on is how Jesus talks to us so that we would have endurance. Jesus speaks so that we wouldn't fall away. The words of Jesus are meant to give us courage and confidence in the face of the option of quitting. In John chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. He's just explained that a servant is not greater than his master, than his master making the point that how they treat the master is how they're going to treat you and how they're going to treat us. Up until this moment, the disciples have examples of Jesus kind of like upsetting crowds. There's a moment where, uh, there's a moment recorded in the Gospels where there is a crowd that attempts to stone him and Jesus somehow kind of maneuvers and Jedi mind tricks them and just kind of walks away. But I don't think that the, the disciples in this moment had any grasp of what was about to happen. He said in the previous verses that if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And I wonder how the disciples received this because we can read in the Gospels about tense, kind of brewing opposition to Jesus, but this full-fledged assault on him and, and torture of him and raising him up in crucifixion was beyond the imaginations of these men. And along with this statement, he says, I say these things to keep you from falling away. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. He says, the world cannot receive the spirit of truth because it neither sees him nor knows him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. He says, I won't 
leave you as orphans. He says, because I live, you will live. He continually delivered reality to these men so that in the time of doubt and fear and pain and despair, that they wouldn't fall away. This is a moment when Jesus' words prepare us for endurance. They prepare us for staying the course and staying true. They prepare us to keep us from falling away. Jesus says what he says because we will, there will come a time in our lives when we will be tempted to give up. Jesus Christ talks how he talks because he knows that there will come a time in your life when the temptation and the pull to just quit and throw in the towel will be completely unbearable. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to us and he tells us that this spirit of truth will bear witness about him. And knowing these things keeps us, protects us, guards us, holds us in the day of trouble and temptation. He says these things to keep us from falling away. He said them to you so that you would endure. He let us know ahead of time that we would not be immune to the pain and persecution of this life because he himself was not immune to the pain and persecution of this life. And he does that. He gives us this heads up, so to speak, to help us from falling away. The next reason that Jesus says what he says in these three chapters is, is concerned with love. Jesus said these things so that we would love one another. John 15, 17 says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. So Jesus commands us and he commands us with a purpose in mind. It's, it's for something. His aim or purpose is that we would love one another. On the eve of Jesus' torture, he says, I say what I say so that you would love your friends, that you would love your brothers, that you would love your, your family, that the disciples would love one another. In verse 14 above, Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And later, I command you so that you would love one another. If you want to be friends with Jesus, you do what he commands. And he commands what he commands for the purpose of love. A friend of mine said recently that the only thing to do when we haven't been loved well is to love well. And that statement sunk to the bottom, bottom of my heart. That's how Jesus acts. <coughs> That's how Jesus behaves. He loves us in an infinite, powerful way when we don't love him at all. We didn't choose Jesus, but he chose us. In verse 12, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you, which is laying down his life for his friends. And in chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Jesus is offering us the way of love and friendship that is centered on his own love and friendship and commitment. This is how love kind of cascades into our hearts and into our lives from the Trinity. 
Chapter 15, verse 9 says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. Our invitation today is to love one another with the same kind of love that Jesus and the Father share together. Love streams from the Father to the Son and then from the Son to us, but but not exactly. What Jesus is doing here is way more than just being a messenger of the Father's love to us. Jesus doesn't box up the Father's love and deliver it to us like a UPS package that we can open up and look at and love and then kind of put it in our pockets. No, we're actually united with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection through faith, which means we get to enjoy the Father's love the same way that the Son enjoys the Father's love. We get the love of the Father directly through union with the Son. These things I have commanded you so that you will love one another. We didn't choose Jesus, but he chose us. He chose us, and that fact should easily strip us of any kind of entitlement or pride. If if you're in this room and you love Jesus, like I rejoice with you, and we all remember together that he he loved us first, right? Not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, not because we were just really, really, really cute. He loved us. He loved us in a state of darkness, in a state of rebellion. He forgave us and set his love on us. And that should remove entitlement that is uh, rooted in our hearts. Somehow, somehow, even on our, the days where we're most aware of how sinful we are and most aware of how glorious God is, we still kind of believe that we don't really have to show love to other people. Or, or we still kind of believe that we're sort of entitled to God's love. It reminds me of Matthew 18, a parable that Jesus tells. And I'll just summarize it. The kingdom of God could be compared to a king who was clearing accounts and he found a servant who owed him millions of dollars. And that servant came and said, hey, just be patient with me and I'll pay it. Obviously, he couldn't do that. So the king just said, hey, listen, forget about it. Forget about it. I got it. And that same servant left that space and that moment of insane forgiveness and went out and just choked out a servant of his who owed him a nickel. And we're so inclined. Jesus tells that parable because somehow we're inclined to receive the love of God with these these, this kind of like residue of entitlement or this residue of, um, of still believing that we deserve it somehow. But the love of God is lavish and it pours into our hearts in such a way that we're free from the chain and slavery that entitlement would cause us. We're free to forgive other people. That's true freedom. For God so loved the world, God so loved the world, John 3.16 says, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That means God loved the world in this way, right? So means in this way. 
offering eternal life by believing in the Son, and eternal life is defined by, by Jesus in John chapter 17. Jesus defines eternal life as knowing God. And all of that is the expression of God's love to the world. Now being welcomed into that love, go love one another how the Father and Son love one another. Because we've been united with Christ through faith, through participation in his life, death, and resurrection. Go love one another. Abide in Christ's love. And Jesus says that to us so that we love each other. The next thing I want to name is peace. Jesus speaks so that we may have peace in him. And this peace is not a promise about our circumstances. There's something about the power, the obedience, the love of Jesus that gives us peace. There's something about union with Christ that gives us access to a peace that surpasses our circumstances. Through Christ, we get the peace of justification and we get the peace of adoption. We get the peace of Jesus' righteousness and the peace of being united to the Son through faith. Now we live on top of a foundation of perfect peace that no matter what else happens in this life, the most important conflict in your soul has been reconciled. It's been reconciled. This reality removes all fear of death, all fear of guilt or shame or condemnation. Jesus has purposes for why he talks. Many of us could learn from Jesus here. I know I'm, I'm like the number one offender. How often do we find ourselves speaking with unknown purposes or unclear purposes or unloving purposes or worse, purposes that communicate either like online or otherwise in our lives that they're communicating like sources of envy or pride or anger or malice or just irrelevant, irreverent babble, the scripture says. Jesus tells us about himself today that when he speaks, when he speaks, he does it for a reason. He does it, in this case, to give us peace in him so that you can have the kind of peace that Jesus himself has as he sleeps in a boat when he finds himself surrounded with storms on the seas. There's no place to find the kind of peace that you long for outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The next reason I want to focus on, the reason that Jesus says what he says is joy. The fifth reason. Jesus speaks to us so that we may have joy and our joy may be full. Verse 11 from John chapter 15 says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This section of the text, man, it blows my mind. If I try to comprehend how the eternal, all-powerful, intensely pure, perfect joy of Christ is one of the aims of his ministry, like I'm baffled. I'm baffled. It's astounding to me that Jesus would say what he says and do what he does so that I can and so that you can be filled with joy, with joy. I can't wrap my brain around it. 
But for that to have a deep effect on us, we also have to believe that our God, the God that we serve, is a happy God, that he possesses all joy. The Old Testament is replete with examples of what pleases God. God delights in mercy. God delights in justice. He delights in showing love to his people. He delights in his own glory, in his own perfect, pure, moral character. God's love and delight in his own glory is all over the scriptures because God's value gauge is perfectly calibrated. It's right for him to value his joy because he knows what's most valuable in the universe. He's full of joy in the Trinity between the Holy Spirit and the Son. He's full of joy. And the Father says this, for all to hear about his own son at the baptism of Jesus. He says, behold, my son in whom I am well pleased. And then immediately he follows that up with, listen to him, listen to him, listen, listen to him. In Hebrews, we read that Jesus marched like a lamb about to be slaughtered for the joy that was set before him, the joy that was set out past that slaughter. Hebrews 12, 2 explains that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus looked through the torture and pain and death into the joy of accomplishing his purposes in salvation and redemption for his bride, for his church, for you, for you. Jesus's joy is full of perfect obedience to the Father. Repeatedly, Jesus mentions that he shows the world that he loves the Father by obeying the Father. Those things are intertwined and inseparable. This dynamic that Jesus explains to us in verse 10 is deeply connected to our joy. We abide in the love of Christ And as we abide in the love of Christ, we express our love for him in obedience. That is to say, we operationalize love. We operationalize love for Christ through doing what he tells us to do. This is the same dynamic that exists between Jesus and the Father. And we participate in this through faith. Jesus didn't obey the Father so that the Father would love him. He obeyed the Father because of his love for the Father. Likewise, we don't obey the commands of Jesus in order to earn the love of Jesus. It's the love for Jesus that compels us into loving acts of obedience. Love cannot merely be an emotion or a feeling, or a posture. It must be goodness and affection and submission in action. Like God's love for us. It's his unswerving commitment to us to always do things for our good. For our good. Always act in accordance with his loving kindness. And our joy is incrementally growing as we deepen in our love for Jesus and deepen in layer after layer after layer of loving obedience to him in humble submission. And the sixth thing that I want to talk about today is orientation. Orientation. 
I want to conclude with this. Jesus says what he says so that we understand what's going on. So that we understand what's going on. In John 16, verse 4, Jesus says, But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I say these, these things to you so, so that when their hour, that's the hour of persecution. So he says, hey, when everything gets nuts, I said this to you so that you remember and that can stabilize you. That can orient you. That can give you a compass. That can make it so that you understand the reality and you actually look at something daunting and scary and painful and ugly and you go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. he told us. He told us. He told us this was going to happen. He told us this was going to happen to him. That's why when we watched it happen, we could survive. And he told us it was going to happen to us. And that's why when it happens to us, we can still keep marching forward. Jesus speaks so that when the world hates us, we'll remember what he said. Jesus speaks so that when we are in conflict with other Christians, we would remember what he said. Jesus speaks so that when you're lost and you don't know which way is up, you'll remember what he said. When you're kicked out of your family or fired from your job or spit on by your friends, literally or metaphorically, the words of Jesus inform us what kinds of emotional and spiritual navigation tools are reliable and trustworthy and worth following. When your internal world is tempted to be coerced by your circumstances, Jesus sets your feet on a rock and gives you peace. When your internal world is enticed by the instructions of the world, Jesus offers you obedience instead. When what's happening all around you has you confused and unstable, Jesus provides the map for your soul. Jesus defines for us in these chapters what should guide and steer the direction of our mental life and the direction of our emotional life. Jesus offers a place to abide, a place to find joy, a place for true hope because he's overcome the world. Jesus is talking to his closest friends throughout this passage, these, these three chapters, and he's preparing them for his very own torture and murder, and he's preparing them for their very own torture and persecution. And he's making sure that all the navigational landmarks are in place so they can know where they are so when the trouble hits and the persecution starts to happen, they know where to go. They know how to walk. They're oriented. I say these things to you so that you may remember. Remember what I said. Remember what I did. Remember how I told you this would happen. Don't be surprised or caught off guard by the fiery trial when it comes. Don't be knocked off course by your pain. Jesus says, don't be knocked off course by my pain. Don't be knocked off course by your persecution or by your own personal failures, we learn from Peter. When others revile you or when your friends and family mock you, don't forget what I've said and how I've lived. If they persecuted me, then you can be certain that they're going to, per that they're going to persecute you. Remember, remember, don't forget. I said this was going to happen. Don't give up. Don't lose your way. Jesus said these things to us so that when disorientation surrounds us and fights to get a grip of our hearts and souls, 
we would remember that he's overcome the world. We have clear directions. We're to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. That's the way forward. That's the orientation device. We follow Jesus. When the world collapses, Christians know what to do. When the world collapses, Christians know the way. We follow Jesus. When the tragedy drops on us, we know the way. We follow Jesus. When the betrayal guts us, we know the way. We follow Jesus. When the culture is drowning us, we know the way. We follow Jesus. When the sickness ravages us, we know the way. We follow Jesus. When the disappointment crashes all around us, we know the way. We follow Jesus. When the news from the doctor is devastating, he's devastating, we know the way. We follow Jesus. He has the authority to be trusted. He has spoken so that we would hear him and listen to him and believe him. So hear, hear with me one last time the words of Jesus that's the title of this series. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus speaks with ultimate authority in, this, in these three chapters and throughout the scriptures. The authority that orients, that can give us life and hope and light comes from Jesus Christ, the preeminent one. Jesus speaks and gives us directions and understanding to give us endurance for the trials of our lives. Jesus speaks and gives us commands so that we would love one another. Jesus speaks and tells us what's going on so that in him we may have real, lasting, solid, true, full peace. Jesus speaks to his disciples so that in him we would understand the source and the reality and the pure, perfect joy of the Godhead and that we would get to have that same joy and it would be full in us. And Jesus speaks to give us an orientation. We aren't cut loose adrift at sea. We know the way. We follow Jesus. And he proved all of this to us by climbing onto a Roman cross and having his body ripped in shreds and then raising up on the, last, or on the third day. And he's coming back again. And what we do at communion every single week is we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes back again. The way we take communion here at Redeemer is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The glassware is wine, the stoneware is juice. We have uh, three stations down here and one station in the balcony. I have a station to my right and left and then a gluten-free and single-serve station here in the middle. Uh, at Redeemer, we invite anybody who is a Christian to come take communion. That is anybody who places all of their faith, all of their hope, all of their joy, all of the direction of their lives, they've submitted to King Jesus. If, you, if you're in this room and you can, um, you can testify to that, we invite you to come up and take communion with us. If you aren't in that uh, boat, if you've got doubts or challenges or you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, I'd invite you to pray. I would invite you to consider the claims that he makes and what he claims to offer. 
He isn't one among many strategies. He claims to be the only authority and the only strategy. So I invite you to take issue with him or meet him for the first time. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and pray now, and then the servers will come up. So Jesus, we delight to declare faith in your life, death, and resurrection again through participating in communion. Would you fill us with faith as we eat? Would you convict us of sin? Would you convict us of pride? Would you comfort um, weary, despairing hearts? Would you strengthen weak souls in this room? Would you melt uh, cold hearts? And would you make dead hearts alive? Spirit of God, give us zeal. Give us faith. Give us hope. Open our ears in deeper ways. Help us to listen to you, Jesus. Help us to listen to you even as we come forward to proclaim your death until you come again. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Come forward whenever you're ready.